So, um, as I deliver this lecture, why have we got that title there? And it's really because last year, when we had so much of a celebration to do with getting the vote, many people may have thought that that was when, effectively, the war for equality was won. Because if you get your vote in the ballots box, what else do you need? And very few people actually realised that that was simply the first stage towards a battle for equality that had been raged for at least the previous um, three decades, because the 1919 Act, which I'll describe to you in a moment, was the act which, until it was passed, meant that we as women were not persons in law. And that means that, for example, now I have taken my law degree, I have been called to the bar, I've taken my judicial oath, I can open a credit card, I can have a bank account, I can have a passport in my own name. None of those things to personal or professional self-determination would have been my right prior to the 1919 Act because in law I was not a person. Effectively, I was a chattel. And so celebrating this 100 years is a critical event in any feminist calendar and I claim myself loud and proud as being one. And the reason we are here effectively with such an amazing history to tap into is because of a rather awesome woman. Oops, let me see if I can click that one. There. Now, the reason we're here, and the reason that I've had such an amazing digital library to cap into, and the reason there's been so many events been building up, is because of one extraordinary woman called Dana, who in 2014, her interest was piqued by this picture here. Amongst the sea of penguin-clad men, there was one woman, and she wanted to identify who that woman was in this sea of legal um, sepia. And so she started up the 100 Years Project, and I am delighted to give this lecture, effectively to say that we do need to acknowledge the history that we've inherited, because but for some formidable women, back in the 1870s and onwards, and formidable men that supported them against the grain, we would not have the chance to live, exist, and change society that needs so many changes in this current era. So the purpose of tonight is going to be to give a lecture that's divided into thirds. The first is effectively a short introduction to the 1919 Act. The second is to celebrate some of the pioneers that used that act to change society for the better. And the third part is really to say, so have we achieved equality in the law 100 years on? And not for there to be any spoilers, but my answer will be no, just so you know. So prepare yourself for that. So what about the campaign? I do not want anyone to think that when it came to 1918 and 1919, that the act that gave us our legal identity was in any way a gift from the men who were in power. And the men were in power for two reasons. The first was that until the preceding year, 1918, um, women didn't have the vote, which meant that anyone that needed to vote in for change uh, was essentially a male-dominated uh, voting class. And secondly, we didn't have any women MPs because the act to allow women to stand to be a member of parliament hadn't yet been passed. Those two acts were important in 1918 and 1919, but it meant that come the chance to change hearts and minds in 1919, women, in order to achieve the right to be academics, to be lawyers, to be doctors, to exist in a professional world as well as in a private home, had to persuade men to vote for the act in the Houses of Parliament to give them those rights. 
And that wasn't, as I say, a, a gift. It was because 1918, 1919 19, culminated, well, three decades on, culminated in lots of women trying to break down the barriers to self-determination and education. It was a feminist movement, very strongly, to say, I have a brain, I have a will, I have a desire to learn. I have a will, a brain, a desire to earn. I have a will, a brain, a desire to learn, earn, and exchange my learning for that I can distribute to the uh, class I exist in. But if you could afford to go to university, then, of course, that meant you weren't going to be a working-class woman. And if you were going to go to university, it meant that you needed the support of your family. And if you were an upper-class woman, to go to university would have made you very exceptional because, of course, you were being bred in order to uh, bring money into the family as opposed to going out and educating yourself to decide what you wanted to do uh, with your self-autonomy. So the extraordinary women that did go to university in order to learn about law and society came from a very small sector of the class within the uh, United Kingdom. But they were powerful women. They were extraordinary women. They were brainy beyond our belief women because to be the first in the 1870s onwards required you not simply to have a mind sharpened in an environment where education wasn't your right from 0 to 14 to 18, but also to have used it in an environment where it wasn't anticipated that a woman would need to have an education beyond those skills other than simply to acquire and entertain um, a husband or a family or to look after your own. But there were some exceptional women, and that meant that they were already knocking on the door of equality well before the 1919 Act. So let me just call up some of those women. Bertha Cave. When we think about what was needing to be done come 1919, we need to think about Bertha Cave. She applied to join uh, Gray's Inn in 1903, and she was rejected, despite being supported by two masters. Her later appeal was heard and rejected in the House of Lords when she appeared in person before the Lord Chancellor. Any one of us who are lawyers now who anticipate the strength of courage and the sheer grit and verve and nerve that it takes to appear in court must have nothing but absolute admiration for uh, Bertha Cave. A month after Cave's hearing, we have Pankhurst, but this time it's Christabel. Christabel applied to join Lincoln's Inn and was rejected. She was a daughter of a barrister. She graduated from Manchester University, and clearly her capacity to be a barrister was not in doubt. It was her gender that barred her effectively from being admitted to the inn. And for those of you that don't know the structure of our profession, you have to be admitted to an inn in order to be called to the bar in order to be a barrister. So if you shut out the right of entry to an inn, you shut out your ability to be called and therefore you cannot be a barrister. Although by this stage, women were already going to university and had earned and demonstrated their ability to understand law. But they couldn't collect their degrees. So they could go, they could share companion, company, intelligent discourse, argue about the law, but the one thing they couldn't was take their degree alongside the men, which meant that they could um, get, to the, get to the gates but open it to go through. Who next? We now have Christabel Pankhurst, I've just talked about, Gwyneth Bebb. Gwyneth Bebb was an extraordinary woman. 
She had read law at St Hugh's and Oxford and determined to try to batten down the doors. She was one of a number of women who applied to join the solicitor's profession. She tried to argue that by virtue of an interpretation section, section 48, which said effectively he means she, that there was no need for her to be barred from entering it because the provision from 1943 Act was already there. And moreover, the he-she uh, interpretation was to be applied, was as in the imperative, unless to be otherwise specifically provided for, or there be something in the subject or contents repugnant to such construction. Now think about that word repugnance when I think, tell you about the reason why her case led uh, to a refusal to her application to the join. Effectively, the court said that in, 1940, in 1843, the legislator simply could not have contemplated that he meant she, meant she could be a solicitor. Not only could they simply not have contemplated that, but they clearly hadn't contemplated it because otherwise there would be female solicitors by this point. And because there were no female solicitors, that meant there was no precedent, which must meant it wasn't possible. I mean, though, I've seen more circular arguments in Brexit recently, but that does really bring us back down full circle, doesn't it? Now, the, the, the lack of logic, um, inevitable though it may be, may make you wonder where the word repugnant was called into play when the uh, Lords were considering their decisions in private. But nonetheless, the outcome was that her case was um, rejected, it was taken to appeal, and therefore, as of... Um, as of her application, she was not entitled to cross the doors to become a solicitor. Now, in terms of the women's ability to practice as solicitors, as barristers, or indeed to take their degrees, there was a number of important men who were trying to champion their cause. And before we got to the Sex Discrimination Removal Act of 1919, there was such a thing as the Women's Emancipation Bill. She, uh, the Women's Emancipation Bill, effectively wanted to give women the right to autonomy and to equivalence as the male. And it was a bill that took the government uh, by um, storm. It went through its first and second readings. It was about to um, be passed into law and the government suddenly woke up and realised that there would be equal discourse, equal rights given to uh, womankind unless they did something about it. And what did they do? Well, the government um, knew they had, I think it was two weeks, in order to come up with an alternative. And as of the 24th of July, they knew that time was of the essence. So just two days before the Women's Emancipation Bill was about to receive its final stage of approval in the Lord, they presented their own bill which was the Sex Discrimination Removal Bill, which I shall come to in a moment, which had two significant factors removed. What happened next? Well, we have Gwyneth Bebb. They're in the background. No longer were the law lords or those in Parliament able to say that women, by virtue of their intelligence, weren't able to be professionals but purely by virtue of their sex, which of itself was classified as a disability. The outcry was such that even the press were on side. Are men lawyers afraid of women's brains? And so when that clamour was being debated in the House of Lords and in the House of Commons, 
and when the Women's Emancipation Bill was coming before them for consideration. That might explain why public pressure, as well as political pressure from certain members of the Parliament, meant that it looked like it was going to be a home run. So consider the Emancipation Bill, and then consider what was removed. Include women on equal franchise. That was taken out. Allow women to sit and vote in the House of Lords. That was taken out because at the final reading, the House of Lords suddenly realised that it wasn't just their rights that were being voted on in the House of Commons, but theirs in the Lords as well. And rather than let women in, they decided to only allow the bill to pass if that was removed. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't until 1928 that women um, were able to vote on equal terms as men. It wasn't until 1958, 39 years after the 1998, they were able to take their place um, as life peers in the House of the Lords. And it wasn't until 1962 that they were able uh, to take up their hereditary peerships. All because in the space of two weeks in 1919, the government and the House of Lords um, effectively held a gun to the Emancipation Bills, drafters and heads, and said, we'll let this through, but not the other two. And that is why, in some quarters, the Sex Discrimination Removal Act is called a pretty much of a broken straw, a broken reed. But that's not true, because what it gave was more than it took away. We are now 80 days away from its anniversary. And if you look at the terms of the Act, the wording of Section 1 still now rings true and loud and is something to be proud of. A person shall not be disqualified by sex or marriage from the exercise of any public function or from being appointed to or holding any civil or judicial office or post or for entering or assuming or carry on a civil profession or vocation or for admission into any incorporated society. And a person shall not be exempted by sex or marriage from the liability to serve as a juror. And when we consider the women who I'm about to celebrate, what I find significant, although probably unintentionally so, is the stamp at the top which says supply for public service. Because what's remarkable about the women that I'm just about to name is how many of them came to the law not for self-serving purposes, but to reinvest back into the society to improve it for those that they saw needed support, education, um, and inequality to be changed in their name. So after the Act was passed, we had even the Daily Mail. Some things have changed, not necessarily for the better, in the last 100 years. Announcing the women's call to the bar, names of women who went on to do remarkable things, even if they didn't go on to be barristers. And now there's the list of firsts, which I shall trot through. The details of their biographies are in the lecture handout notes, and I really recommend you dive into them because they were extraordinary women. They were remarkable then. They will be just as remarkable now. The first woman to be called to the bar was Dr Ivy Williams. Um, it had been expected that it would be Miss Bebb. But Miss Bebb, um, although studying for the bar exams uh, at the time, she would have been able to apply to pass, uh, died in childbirth, which is rather an irony and a particularly sad one. And so it meant that Dr Ivy Williams, who had um, also uh, been at Oxford and studying at the precursor of St Anne's, in effect became the first woman to be called. She was, however, not the first person to practice. That was Helena Normanton. 
Helena Lomerton was a remarkable woman, and when I call these names up, you should not think they existed in isolation. Helena Lomerton was part of the group of people, including Bebb, including Pankhurst, including Cave, who for years had been trying to gain admission to the legal profession. Helena Normanton was the first woman to be issued a passport in her maiden name in 1924. She was a former suffragette. She was a committed campaigner for the rights of women. She had the courage of her convictions and wasn't afraid to make her views known. So, for example, when uh, there was an article in the Strand magazine by a certain Margot Asquith, because don't think it's always men that try to take women down, claiming that a judicial mind is not the strongest part of a woman's intellectual equipment. Few of us would want to be tried by a female judge. Normanton told the editor, in a letter that was subsequently published, that your magazine will rapidly disappear if you publish inaccurate articles of a frumpish and out-of-date point of view. She had also, by that time, written a book called Everyday Law for Women, because she did not think that law should be a province of those that had the money, the power and the influence to use it and she wanted to disseminate her knowledge to those that didn't have the access that she then sought. As she gained notoriety for being uh, the first woman called to the bar, her caseload continued and she was the first woman to prosecute in a murder trial in the English courts in 1948. But this is not a white history, nor should it be. How many of you will be aware that a woman uh, by the name of Cornelia Sarabju from India was the firm first female graduate from Bombay University, the first Indian woman to study at Oxford, and the first woman of any nationality to read law at Oxford, and she was at Somerville. She will be the first woman to sit the exams for Bachelor of Civil Law in 1892, but she had to wait for three decades before she was able to get the degree that she'd earned. She became an advocate for social reform in the time that she was unable to practice as a lawyer, and she argued for rights of segregation, she supported the rights of women, um, and effectively in India, she did everything she could do bar someone that needed the initials to her name. She returned to England and was eventually admitted to Lincoln's Inn and called to the bar in 1923, age 55. That's how much determination it took in those years to take up your right to have the initials next to your name that meant that you could support the rights of others who didn't have the opportunities for education you had. Someone else to be celebrated, Stella Thomas. Stella Thomas was born in Lagos, but she came to the UK to further her education in 1926, and she was caught in Middle Temple in 1929, called to the bar in 1933, making her the first female barrister called to the bar from West Africa. She was a radical woman who, again, was not afraid of making her views known. In 1934, her, she hit the press because she attended a lecture delivered by the historian Dame Marguerite Perrith at the Royal Society of Arts, and at the end, she rose from the hall and delivered a stinging diatribe where she dismantled the notion that the way that Africa should function best would be to tell what to do by uh, the white classes that, consult, that, that controlled it. She told the assembled audience, including most of the great and good of London, that um, for making for that England, Britain, should not make puppets of African chiefs, and there must be real cooperation and a real understanding 
of the country that they were determining because at present the British were dictating to them and the Africans had to do what they were told. Now for anyone to do that would have been remarkable, but for a woman of that era and that age to do it was truly a revelation showing that you could be outspoken and um, able and articulate and confront um, the powers that be if you had the education, the will, the determination uh, to make a difference and Stella Thomas certainly did that. She returned to Sierra Leone, uh, she practiced in Nigeria and she was the first Nigerian woman to sit on the bench. First silks, Helena Normanton. She who'd been there at the fight at the turn of the century, she who'd been there to be the first woman called to the bar. She, in 1948, was one of the two women to be called um, uh, made silks. The other being the remarkable Rose Hybron. Considering at this point, the Daily Mail, a publication that just keeps on giving, <laughs> published a letter from a certain Mr. Harvey Middleton on the question of women barristers saying this, not only were women unable to see that there were two sides to every question, but their righteous indignation meant that they would never be able to remain sufficiently cool to open a case. And it wasn't just what was inside the head that concerned Mr. Hervey Middleton, it was also what was outside the head in the form of the hair and the wigs, because he went on to ask this question. He added, which of their physical attributes were an obstacle to becoming a barrister? How would a woman wear a wig, he asked, if she waves her hair and puts a wig on top of it? She looks like she's carrying a beehive. Alternatively, if she wears a close-fitting wig over short, straight hair, she looks like a female convict when she takes it off. Look at Rose Halbron. The woman wore lipstick with attitude, and it matched her personality. In 1939... Rose Heilbronn had become Britain's youngest woman barrister. She took silk in just 10 years and received the letter telling her that she was about to be appointed within days of giving birth to her daughter. And she was back at work six weeks later. When, in 1939, being the youngest woman barrister ever to be called, um, she was interviewed by the press. She told the Daily Express this, I am no blue stocking. The general impression of a woman lawyer seems to be a sober old maid. I have not adopted the law as a hobby. I am serious about my career, but that does not mean I shall give up dancing, swimming, golf or tennis. Legal problems will not keep me from other jobs I love. When I marry, I intend to continue as a barrister. This is the next bit, which I love. I have many men friends. Some have possibly fallen in love with me, but I have no plans for marriage. I am not in love. That does not mean I am sacrificing my life for a career. Now, for someone to say that in 1939 is remarkable. And she was a truly remarkable woman. Um, she was someone who was active throughout her years at the bar, not simply in what she did in her work, but what she did in her private life as well. Which is also why... She was one of the first judges. She was appointed a recorder of Burnley in 1956, and she was also the first woman to be appointed a commissioner of assizes by the Lord Chancellor in 1962. But whilst everyone expected her to be the first High Court judge, she wasn't. That went to Elizabeth Lane QC. Um, Elizabeth Lane QC was assigned uh, to uh, the High Court bench, 
the first judge of the county courts, having already been one of her accolades. By that time, High Brom was sitting at the Old Bailey, circa 1972. The attention accorded to her in that first day was remarkable. The court was blitzed by the press and public alike. The Liverpool Daily Post noted this. The fact that Hauerbrand was, quote, imprisoned by masculine curiosity, the gossip columnist seemed more interested in finding suitable adjectives for her smile at prosecuting counsel. It's enough to strain the quality of everyone's mercy. So women were objectified, but she was a heroine. She was a hero because she was everything that the public wanted to be. She was a Liverpool lass. She was brave, she was intelligent, she was glamorous, she was articulate and she was a fighter. She was the first leader of the Northern Circuit and she paved the way for another one of my favourites, Barbara Calvert QC. Barbara Calvert QC is one of the first women that made an impression upon me when I came to the bar. She was called to the bar in 1959, age 35, uh, when less than 5% of barristers were women, and she joined John Platt Mill's um, set, which was a liberal left-wing set then. She was directed towards family law, which is a bit of a theme, frankly, as you go through the women's careers. And uh, by the 70s, she'd become concerned about the number of young people that weren't able to get a practice, and so she did more than simply complain. She set up her own set called Fourbrick Court, where the purpose was not simply to give young people a career, but having got a career, that they should represent those who couldn't afford or didn't have access to legal aid and counsel. She became the first head of chambers. She became the first QC to be appointed a full-time chair of industrial tribunals. She became the first female QC to take a case to the European Court of Human Rights, and the case was if your child was taken into care, you as a parent had no right to see that child. It was no longer yours. It was the state's. Barbara took that case to the European Court. She won, and that led to a change in law. She was remarkable. She was funny. She was witty. She was engaging. She was inspirational. She was the first female QC to be entered the bencher of the Inns of Northern Ireland. And she was an all-round hero. But we mustn't make this a history just about um, those we traditionally see in the press. You have in Patricia Scotland a woman of many firsts. Um, she was the first black woman to be appointed a deputy high court judge, recorder, and master of Middle Temple. She was the first black woman ever to be appointed as a minister in a UK government. She was the first woman to take up the position of the Attorney General for England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And she continues to make waves in the job that she does because, as we now know, she was the first female secretary-general of the Commonwealth of Nations. Dame Linda Dobbs. Whenever I see pictures of Dame Linda Dobbs, it makes me smile because she is invariably smiling in almost every picture she see, we see. There is so much one can say about um, her, but I simply want to read, I think, a little bit from one of the, the interviews she gave at the beginning of this year, where she did what we need more women to do, which is to be very vocal about the problems that they experienced. She said that in the 1980s, which is the era I came to the bar, 
there were challenges posed, and essentially because clerks, as a default mechanism, thought that men were better than women, they'd allocate work to the male pupils and then the female pupils. When work came in, they'd give the sex cases to the women, some things don't change. And that if there was an issue with who got the brief, it would go to those that would be uh, the solicitors that would approve of, rather than necessarily the client. She became chairman of the Criminal Bar Association, where she set up the first Diversity and Equality Committee. She received a tap on the shoulder um, by then Charlie Faulkner, who asked her whether she considered sitting, whether she would do so. And her reaction wasn't immediately to say yes. But ultimately, she thought it would be her duty to do so, because if she wasn't seen to be there, how many other people will possibly think it was a place for them to be? Visibility is important. It took her, however, seven years for the next BAME appointment to be made. So when she was appointed, as she pointed out, it was hardly the floodgates that she had hoped would happen upon her appointment. And then we come to Brenda Hale. Brenda Hale is a woman of so many firsts that it would take a lecture to talk about them. But she was the first woman to be appointed to the Law Commission. She was the first woman law lord. She was the first woman justice of the Supreme Court. She was the first president of the Supreme Court. She's also the only person that's got a fan club that extends to being called Beyonce, <laughs> that extends to having a brooch collection that makes the national press and international press. The only person who has drawings done about her entrapping politicians in her wily web <laughs> and the only person who has a children's book about to be published about her by lag next week because her aim is to inspire other young girls to think they can do more and achieve more for both themselves and for the society and uh, to prove that women are equal to everything. So she is a fistful of firsts. Before I go any further, can I just point out the notable absence of slides I've been able to call up for LGBT and for disability? firsts. That's not because they're not there, but it is because they're not necessarily out there to be named, and that's something I want to return to in my lecture in November. It's a missing gap, and when I say visibility is important, that means in lectures such as this and in others. As I say, November, watch that space. In terms of what the Act did, um, it will be foolish to say that the 1919 Act, for the reasons I've described, won us the battle for equality, but this lecture is too short for me to tell, say what other acts contributed to it. If you would like to have a short synopsis in really easy, functional, accessible view, then please go to the Women's Legal Landmark Project, because it breaks down the legislation, both in terms of its social history, its political history, its legislative context, and it is a really fantastic resource to go to. One thing I've learnt, however, in giving these lectures and by listening to the dialogues of others, including my colleague Keelan, is that it's not good enough simply to do a little historical review of what's gone on, because unless, as a woman at the bar, you say what you experience, it simply becomes a historical treatise. It's not good enough to say what other people did, you have to say what you did. And so here's my little journey to the bar in seconds. Uh, any of you that listened to my previous lectures would know that I come, uh, I'm a child of a single parent family when being from that background was a shame for my mother and a stigma upon me. Things have changed for the better mightily. It was a working class family, my nan was one of nine, my granddad was one of ten. 
Uh, my mother was one of triplets. No one has stayed at school beyond the age of 15. I went to comprehensive schools because that's clearly what we did. My comprehensive school had no concept of university for someone such as me, which is why mum took matters into her own hand, drove me down to Oxford, having written to every single college, asking for they took comprehensive students, pulled up outside St Anne's and told me to go ask for a place, which I did, because she was my mum. And it was through the kindness of strangers, the porter who didn't turn me away, the secretary to the principal that didn't turn me away, the principal that didn't turn me away, that I was given an hour's opportunity to explain why I wanted to come to Oxford and was encouraged to apply, and that is why I went back to my comprehensive school, entered the fourth term comp uh, entry system, which was set up and later abolished because it uh, gave advantage to the public school private tuition and got into Oxford. So these letters should say, whoopee dippy, here I go. By this stage, my, um, my boyfriend, now husband, of some decades long, had worked hard. I was entirely unemployable. I didn't work hard enough, <laughs> except for getting to the bar, and not the type you should do. I had no interest in lectures. I was discovering about politics. I was discovering about life. I did not want to be bothered about an academic education, but I did know I wanted to impress the tutors, so I was your classic last-minute preparer. Therefore, demonstrable oomph, go-home collapse, party, until the next time and then work it up again. I am not a nine-to-five type of person. So I was told to think of the bar and these two letters from 1982, which I only discovered over the weekend because my husband was going through um, his uh, father's belongings to find what we had written to them. And it's instructive. I'm going to have to come around here because I can't, I've not read them for so long. So this is my writing on the left and this is where I'm contemplating going to the bar. And I'm already moaning about how much work there might be. But I'm identifying what the problems will be according to other people, which is, my law tutor has said, I better tone down my, quotes, colourful personality if I want to impress the Conservative chambers. But I say bollocks. <laughs> I refuse to... This does sound very pompous, doesn't it? There we are. I refuse to give up my ideals and act a lie this early on in my career. I shall look respectable, but a lady die M&S style, brackets or lack of, just is not me. And either I'll get a job on my individual strengths or not. I'll compromise, but I won't sell out. Hurrah for self-assertiveness, A. Like I say, the arrogance of use clearly hadn't left me. At the same time, my boyfriend, like I say, the man who knew me very well by then, is writing to his mum and dad, saying he's trying to encourage me to go to the bar, but I've had to persuade her. Oh, he persuaded me to go and talk to a senior partner, but the senior partner said, in order to overcome my lack of social standing and all that shit, as well as my gap in finances, I'd have to get a first and I'd have to, and it goes on, uh, change the, uh, the rest of the way I presented myself. Well, needless to say, the advice given was not taken. I did not get a first because you can't party as hard as I did and get a pass and survive at the end of the time, nor did I change my attitude because attitude was something that guided me um, before, since, and probably still does. But come to the bar, I did. And I came to the bar, again, out of ignorance, because what I did when I was in my second year at university, as I wrote to every single chambers, handwritten letters, that offered a funded pupillage. And I said, I want to come to the bar. You should really want me. In fact, you should want me so much, you need to pay for me to come, because if you don't, I can't come which meant that in my second year at university, before I passed my bar finals, 
Before I passed my degree, before I'd gone to bar school, before I passed my bar finals, I had a funded pupillage for 12 months. How lucky was I? But some things don't change, like attitude. Presentation. There I am, a new member of Took's Court, Michael Mansfield set. We were a radical set. I was proud to be part of that set. I still am. I go to Lambeth County Court. I have on a black suit. I didn't go into the pie crust pearls issue. It was a male suit. It was stylish. It was fitted. Enlivened by a butler and Wilson. Circular brooch. Oh, I was channeling Brenda Hale then and didn't know it. No one could see the brooch because it was covered by a very heavy polyester gown, except the judge, who claimed he couldn't hear me. I didn't understand what that meant. It meant he wasn't prepared to hear me. When I asked why, it was because I was dressed inappropriately. In court, I asked why that was the case when my neighbour, a man, had on some very bright brazen red braces, which apparently weren't offensive, and the judge asked me to stand down and put me aside. I rang up Mike Mansfield. We agreed I would take off the offending brooch in order not to compromise the client's case. He would write to the judge to complain about the behaviour, but it turns out the judge was offended by me as I was by him, so there was an exchange of letters, but as I say in the notes, I far preferred Mike's. Presentation hasn't really changed that much since. Our, how we appear as women is something that is the cause of attention. We weren't allowed to wear trousers at the bar until 1996. How extraordinary is that until a campaign by the Association of Women Barristers said that that was just ridiculous, as clearly it was. But nowadays, young women who come up to me who are training to be barristers or at the bar say that their appearance is constantly subject to criticism. If they wear a full face of makeup because that's what makes them feel good, they're told they're not serious enough. If they wear no makeup, they're told they're not making an effort. At what point have we won the right for our looks not to determine how we're perceived able to do our jobs? What else has changed? Makeup I've gone into. This, this is just a joy. So, and a career's advice book. An advocate's task is essentially comparative. Whereas women are not generally prepared to give battle unless they are annoyed, a woman's voice also does not carry as well as a man's. Now, I look at that, and I think of the remarkable women that I speak alongside, and I think I would not change a syllable, any intonation of the voice they have. But when I look at myself critically, I have to acknowledge that the voice I use in court has become an acquired voice. It's not my Finchley voice. It's not the one I use with my friends and my family. It's deeper. I try to pause over words, fail most of the time. But I most deliberately made an effort to make it more masculine because men's voices were heard in court more readily and more willingly by the judges in very men that were hearing them. And so I tried to adapt to it. And I ask myself now whether I would do the same thing as a young barrister. Why should we change what we are when what we are is just as good? So that's my mayor culpa and my admission. One other thing in terms of attitude that's kept, which is I have never, ever allowed myself to be called in court or in any judgment or in any transcript, anything other than Ms. I fail to see why whether I'm married or not has any relevance to what I articulate or what I record or the advice I give. And don't forget, it wasn't until Alison Russell was appointed to the High Court bench and insisted on being called Ms, which made the news in a not a flattering way at all, 
that we high court judges were not denominated by their marital status if they were women. So what about how we appear? I am proud to be the type of barrister I am. I have piercings in my ears beyond numeration. I have more piercings in my ears than my children do. I wear red lipstick as though it's weaponry. I wear high heels because I'm five foot two and quite frankly I need to see over the, the, the lectern at the front of the court. When I wear red lipstick though, it's a war cry. It's part of the armour that I put on when I go in and it's such a leaf motif that when I was in Hillsborough, if I didn't have it on, families would email or text asking if I was okay. When we choose how we appear to be and how we want to be, it's how we feel comfortable. It's what gives us that extra edge to make the argument we need to seek. Because whatever makes us do our job in the best way is what works. So do not compromise. You need to look professional. You need to look as though you're not the client. But in other respects, it's for you to identify how you wish to be because it should be what you say rather than your gender or the voice with which you say it, which counts. So coming to this last stage, I asked the question, are we nearly there yet? Well, are we really? When in the Houses of Parliament, in letters exchanged by a minister to a then Prime Minister, we, we use words such as this, that are used to men about women as though they are an insult, then we clearly are not, not yet, yet, are we? For so long as comments like this raise a titter by any man that hears them, or woman that hears them, then we are not there yet. And it reminds me of what Helena Kennedy has said for very, very many years, and she is my absolute hero, and I would happily adopt her words. As in other professions, there is a glass ceiling for women, which means that getting to the top floor involves a detour out through the window, up through the drainpipe, rather than a direct route along the charted corridors of power. That has not changed. On to the last part. Why aren't we there yet? What needs to change? When we, the Bar Council, looked at the statistics of women entering the profession, their progression at the profession, their retention at the profession, and their, their promotion within the profession, what we learn is this. Essentially, pupils comprise 50-50 male-female upon uh, attaining pupillage. By the time we get to a, about five, ten years call, you can see the percentage changing. By the time we get to silk, we are a tiny segment of the available range of talent. The stats are, frankly, unacceptable. Female pupils, 51 to 48. Women, 37% of the bar compared to 50% of the UK working age. Female QCs, percentages 15.8%. What that means is we start off with 50-50 able, intellectually competent, confident women entering the legal profession. And by the time they get to five to ten years, they've drifted away and we've only got about a third left. And of the third that are there, they don't apply to, or don't think they can apply, or they leave before they can, apply to be silk. So the silks come from a tiny pool of a small pool in a very big pond. And that cannot be acceptable. Because most of our judges are taught, taught, drawn from the ranks of the silks, it also means that certainly from the High Court upwards, we have an ever-decreasing pool. In fact, we've got a few pebbles scattered upon the surface. We've got droplets, and sometimes it's more of a mist. 
So we've got six of 17 women High Court judges in the family division. Is it really an accident that they're in the family division? 19 of 68 in the Queen's Bench, one of 14 in Chancery. Is that an accident? One of five women heads of divisions, nine Lady Justices of Appeal, three out of 12. That are stats that is not acceptable and have to change. The independent bar bleeds potential and the talent it retains plateaus at a lower level. Why is that? Well, Helena, again, um, writ what I can not say um, as well as she did, so I shall say it for you. Majority are steered toward public service law, which means effectively legal aid. And that's something that Linda Dobbs was saying in her interview. Legal aid has been decimated. It pays less well, there's less work of it. You work intensively in order to keep your practice going because of the lower remuneration. If you're working in a field of law which is both underfunded, underpaid and under-resourced and exhausting, there is a war of attrition simply to keep going. If you add childcare onto that, if you, lead to, if you add caring responsibilities onto that, then it is a reason why it is difficult to continue when it is more lucrative and you're more respected if you often work in private practice or leave the field of law entirely. If you stay, and if you're doing crime, then women have got a high proportion of doing sex cases because it looks good for a woman to be doing sex cases acting for a man as the male defendant invariably is, but not always. And that is why we have to have a serious look about what's going on in the way we attract, recruit and retain, nurture and support young women. These are the main reasons why women are leaving the bar. None of them are exceptional, all of them are predictable, all of them are preventable. We need, as the Association of Women Barristers report published today illustrates all too well, we need to address the concerns that you can see identified here. Power imbalance creates vulnerability. Unequal treatment around the distribution of work creates uncertainty. Inappropriate behaviour means that whether you're in practice or whether you're in courtroom or you're in chambers, you feel as though you're not being treated with respect. And the reason these factors are identified is because one of the other things that's emerged with full force over the course of the last year and 18 months is the degree to which, at the bar, bullying and harassment is a significant underreported issue. And so when I've talked about the reasons why women leave the bar, and I've talked about parenting responsibilities and caring responsibilities, I've not talked about attitudinal changes, which have to happen systematically from the earlier stages through to the most senior. There are moves afoot, and that's why we should be positive about it, because it's by virtue of people being prepared to speak out that over the course of the last 18 months and two years, things have started to change. Today, the Bar Council launches an app called Talk to Spot. Talk to Spot is an incredible resource. It means that if you witness or if you are a victim of inappropriate harassment whether it be bullying of power or whether it be physical um, approaches that are unwanted and untoward, then what you can do is you talk to Spot as an AI mechanism, which means you can report what has happened. You control the words you use, you control whether your name is used, and it's a time-logged record of what you have experienced. You can choose to submit it or simply have it there as a record. If you choose to submit it, the AI 
technological, it, technological data is so clever it can recognise you're a barrister and so therefore it will go to the Bar Council. Sending it to the Bar Council is not the same as a complaint, it's simply reporting it. And the reason that's important is that up until now, when complaints have been made against certain barristers or judges, if it's been a one-off issue, there's been no one to know whether it's a pattern of behaviour. By virtue of the data going to the Bar Council anonymised, it means they can build up a pattern of knowing whether there's a particular problem in a court, or with a judge, or with the chambers, or whether there's a problem with types of behaviour, which means then they can intervene and act, all without you needing to be identified in any way, shape or form. Only if you choose to be identified can you then decide if you want to participate in making a complaint. And the reason you might want to do that is you may well be contacted through the anonymous loop to say, by the way, you're not the only one. Nine women have said this about that man. It's not just you. Would you like to, would you like to do more? So the app is a huge development and it's been launched today, in addition to the other helplines which you need to access. The other issues are about mentoring. There is a huge responsibility on men and women to make sure that they don't become remote as they become more senior. There is a massive duty to make sure that you are visible and accessible, that you talk to the young, that you mentor the young, that you do not appear remote simply because success or hard work or exhaustion makes you so. Because if we don't lean down and support those who need to follow us, then the bar will atrophy. And that is not good enough, because what we do at the bar is the most fantastic, exhilarating, intellectually stimulating, fly-by-the-wire, exhausting, entertaining, funny, inspiring profession you could ever hope to be in. And it will be made the stronger and the more powerful, the more diverse its applicants are, because as we have seen over the course of the last week or two, the law is the one bastion that stands absolutely firm against attempts to abuse the power that is otherwise given to other people. When everything is falling apart, the law is the one thing we can turn to with a non-politicised independent judiciary who make decisions based on the law as handed down by Parliament and on the facts as presented to them. But the law, in order to be respected, has got to reflect the society it serves. And that means we cannot afford to have a judiciary that, when we look at it, looks male and white. It must be of every colour that we have in our society, of every gender, of every sexuality. And that cannot be achieved just by quotas. We cannot have a sticky tape plaster to make those changes now. And if it is to change, that means we need to invest in the young not simply invest in terms of when they're at the profession, but we need to reach out to those who may not think of coming to the law at all. And having reached out to them, we can't attract them to the bar and push them towards legal aid work when legal aid is decimated and it won't nurture and support their careers. So what needs to happen by all sectors of those of us that work in this profession is we need to have an honest appraisal about what it is we want the bar and the judiciary to look like in the next 5, 10 and 15 years' time. We can do things. We should do things. The Association of Women Barristers makes key recommendations. The Bar Council is effective, engaged and an adjutant in this respect. Progression at the Bar has got to be something we achieve in the next 100 years. 
because visibility matters. Visibility matters because if you don't see people like you there, you don't think it's a profession you can enter. Visibility matters because if we don't celebrate what we've done, then there's no reason to inspire other people to follow us. Visibility matters in our daily life. Civic statues. Why was it only last year that we got a statue of a woman in Westminster facing the corridors of power? Why is it the street names are mainly identified over, over men rather than women? Why is it that Wikipedia has such a tiny proportion of women identified as opposed to men? And all of these things can change and are changing. It is why we have a statue of uh, Millicent now in Westminster facing the halls of power. It is why my friend and colleague and some I admire, Keelan, uh, together with other colleagues at Doughty Street, last year started a campaign of renaming streets with some women's names. And it is why Wikipedia have got a phenomenal organisation called Women in Red that is making their mission to go through Wiki and to change names in red to blue. And if you click on blue, then you have the identity of the person concerned. Because it matters. If you exclude a woman's voice, if you exclude a woman's face, then there's very little to demonstrate the degree to which we can and should and will contribute to society. So please look around you with fresh eyes when you're walking around the streets and look up at the street names. Please, when you know of an academy that's got aspiring students that are thinking about what they can do beyond school. Please, when you're thinking about whether or not they should enter a profession rather than leaving to earn money, please think about what you or someone you know can do in order to go at those early stages of thinking about careers and introduce a profession to them to inspire them to do something that by virtue of their birth or income they wouldn't have the ability to do. If you choose to come to the bar, then do seek out and expect to be supported by organisations because they are there. Don't be shy. I am simply a, one of a number of women and men who want to make sure that we change the bar for the better over the course of the next 100 years. Because we can't simply plan for what we have now. The bar is a phenomenal force for good. The fact that there are some things wrong with it doesn't mean to say it's an institution to be criticised. It's an institution that needs engagement, activism, visibility, and challenges taken to those aspects which don't make it work as well as it can do. And through the mechanism of this type of lecture, which I have to say, if Baroness Ruth Deitch, who held this position some eight years ago, hadn't encouraged me to apply, I would never have dreamed of applying for this position. How could I possibly do that? I scraped a second at Oxford. I was so relieved they didn't divide them then, because I certainly wouldn't have got a 2-1. What would I possibly have done to have deserved being a professor at law at Gresham College? And yet, I applied and I got the position. If someone doesn't give you encouragement to do things, you often discount the possibility that you're capable of doing them until, in fact, someone believes in you as much as they did and you're here and you use the change for the benefit that you can actually make a difference and say something that someone else may not have said. So thank you very much for your time and your energy and your engagement. Leaving points, please don't simply look to others for leadership. It's important to take action yourself. 
And as I said, I believe strongly it's the responsibility of those that have climbed the ladder, not to knock away the rungs, but to reach down and pull others up to follow. The women I've celebrated tonight haven't risen to prominence by being quiet and avoiding controversy. I think it's a non-delegable duty to act. And with that message, thank you for your attention and please pass on the word.